Blog Talk Radio. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. You see, Satan is loosed in order to pull together all of the rebels to reveal the true character of these Christ-rejecting sinners, to bring it into the light so that the destruction is manifestly just. Welcome to Grace To You Weekend with John MacArthur. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. When you see the aerial coverage of the damage caused by a tornado, it's stunning to see how one block of homes can be completely destroyed and the next block is relatively untouched. 
Sometimes it's two houses side by side, one leveled, one left intact. Well, it's one thing to ride out a natural disaster, but there's no avoiding the calamity that will hit your life on the day that Christ returns. That is, unless you are prepared. Make sure you're ready for Christ's second coming. That's at the heart of John MacArthur's study called When Jesus Comes, here on Grace to You Weekend. Follow along with John now as he looks at the unparalleled events prophesied in the book of Revelation. Just imagine a world where righteousness and goodness dominate. Imagine a world where there's total and lasting and enforced peace, where joy abounds, where health is widespread, where people live for hundreds of years, a world where there are lions and lambs lying down together and children can play in snake pits, where bears and cows walk together led by a child. Imagine a world where food is profuse and well-being is common to everyone. Imagine a world ruled by one perfect person, one world ruler, and where under that world ruler only glorified, perfected people are the agents who carry out His will and His purpose so that perfection reigns from the top right on through the whole system. Imagine a world where sin is dealt with instantly and firmly. Well, if you can imagine that kind of world, you're headed toward understanding the character of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom to come on a restored and radically reconstructed earth. It is coming because He is coming. And the chapter before us presents the general character of that glorious paradise regained. As the structure of the kingdom unfolds, remember that in chapter 19 is the return of Jesus Christ. He comes back. He comes back to the great battle of Armageddon, which He engages in. It lasts a very brief time. He destroys all the ungodly remaining on the world, as the end of chapter 19 tells us. And then in chapter 20, He sets up His kingdom. And the first thing we saw in the setup of the kingdom is the removal of Satan, the removal of Satan. Verse 1, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a, a short time. The second thing that I noted for you in our previous study is the reign of the saints. Look at verse 4. This is another characteristic of the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom. Not only will Satan be bound, and consequently the world will be run by Jesus Christ Himself, who imparts that rule through His glorified saints from the Old Testament, the time of the tribulation, and the New Testament as well. But we see here in verses 4 through 6 the reign of the saints. And I saw thrones... They sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received this mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In that verse, you have Old Testament saints. You have those who lived during the time and ministry of Christ. You have the New Testament saints, the tribulation saints, all of them coming together. The rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So you have all of the godly resurrected before the thousand years, as we noted, and you have the ungodly resurrected after the thousand years is over. Well, that takes us to the third point. The removal of Satan, the reign of the saints, is, character, is the character of the kingdom. But there's a third thing, and that's the return of Satan. We come down to verse 7. Very important. 
When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, the return of Satan. Now, I remind you again that during the kingdom, Satan has no part. He plays no role. He's not there, and his demons aren't there with him. I think it's fair to assume that it wouldn't do much good if uh, our Lord bound Satan and didn't bind all his millions of minions who were running loose in the earth. I think the whole system is bound. Satan's binding ends, however, at the close of the kingdom. And it doesn't tell us how. It just says when the thousand years are completed, Satan is released from his prison. We don't know how he's released. doesn't matter how he's released. next question would be, why is he released? And that is the fair question. Why would God release him? Well, that's more evident. Let me give it to you. No unsaved person will enter the kingdom. It appears if you take all of the prophecies with regard to the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is exhaustive against the wicked and all of them die. That means the only people going into the kingdom are the people who are believers, Jews whom the Lord has spared, and you know that He's going to do that. Revelation 12 tells us how He hides them in the wilderness so that the Antichrist can't destroy them. And Gentiles who have come to faith in the true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who escaped the treachery of Antichrist and all the rest of the judgments that are going on. They go in in physical bodies just like we have right now. They'll be no different than us. They'll go into the kingdom in their normal physical form. All the ungodly will be destroyed. And so all you have in the kingdom then are believers. All you have are the godly, those who belong to the Lord. If you need um, a word on that from Scripture, you might listen to Isaiah 60 and verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. It is only the righteous who go into the kingdom. Verse 21 of chapter 19, after the slaughter of Armageddon, says the rest were killed with the sword. And that's all of them. There is nothing in the Scripture that says any unbeliever survives the day of the Lord. You say, well, then they come into the kingdom and they have children. Sure. And remember, the conditions are perfect, so they proliferate. And they live long And they are productive for a long time, but they produce, guess what? Sinners. Because that's all we can produce, right? Even in millennial conditions, we're going to produce sinners because we're fallen people. So their children are going to be sinners, and they're going to need to be saved. And amazingly, while many of them will come to faith in Christ and many of them will believe, many will not. In a thousand years, there can be millions of people on the globe. The exponential reproduction growth will be rapid. And many of them, sad to say, will love their sin. And they are the ones that the Lord will judge, in some cases by killing them, in some cases by some other kind of swift judgment, in some cases by holding back the rain so that they have to experience harsh living conditions, as we read earlier. They will love their sin, they will refuse His grace, and they will refuse the lordship of the King of all the earth. It's an amazing thing to think about, actually. Though Jesus Christ reigns in a totally renewed universe, though He has absolute power over everything and everyone, though it's a perfect world, His glorious perfections are manifested through His person and His will and through all of the glorified saints who carry out His will. Even though everything is exactly the way it ought to be, everything is right, everything is peaceful, there aren't any wars, everybody's weapons have been pounded into plowshares, everything is flourishing, all the economies of the world are doing very well, everything is prosperity on every front, everything is bliss, utopia has arrived, people will reject Christ. And it's important to make this reminder that people reject Christ because they love what? Sin. They are rebellious sinners. And they love their sin. 
And it really is not an issue what kind of world they're living in. I dare say there are people in this society today, many of them, millions of them, who would choose this kind of society or a worse kind of society over a society ruled by Jesus Christ. Would they not? They have no particular love for righteousness. In Romans 8, 7, it says, "...the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God." The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. They will have ample proof all around them that Jesus is God. They will have ample proof all around them that He is the Savior. They will have ample benefits by His loving kindness and generosity and mercy and grace toward them. But in spite of all of that, they will reject Him. They will have all kinds of evidence of His miracle power and of His swift judgment, His equity. But like the willful sinners on the, on the earth when Jesus came the first time, they will reject Him. The Pharisees, according to Matthew chapter 12, said about Jesus, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. They said He's demonic. We hate Him. Kill Him. How could they conclude that? Because they love their sin. They love their sin. And so it isn't the environment that saves people, whether they're in a terrible one or a good one. They rejected Jesus the first time He came, and He showed them a glimpse of what a perfect world would be like. He basically banished disease from Palestine. He forgave sin over and over, day after day. He taught truth. He demonstrated loving kindness, generosity. He created food for them to show them a little taste of what it was going to be like in the kingdom. He fed them fish and loaves on the side of the sea. He gave them principles to make their life rich and rewarding, and when they had their chance, they screamed for His blood because they loved their sin. And that's the nature of depravity, and no matter what the environment is, doesn't change that. So Satan is loosed to offer cohesive leadership to bring all the rebels together so that what is latent can break loose. You say, why does God want it to break loose so He can destroy it? You see, Satan is loosed in order to pull together all of the rebels to reveal the true character of these Christ-rejecting sinners, to bring it into the light so that the destruction is manifestly just. See that? I mean, God could just kill them all, but that's not the way He does it. Before they are executed, before they are killed, their rebellion is manifest so that all the universe knows that the execution that God brings upon them is a righteous one. So Satan is loose to bring the rebels together, providing the cohesive leadership and the demonic force to pull them together to fight against Christ so that their latent opposition can be made manifest to the whole universe, and therefore God's devastation and destruction of them is seen as just and righteous. But a footnote here is appropriate, I think. The issue regarding salvation is never a lack of information. I want you to get that. It's not a lack of information. Romans 1 says everybody has enough knowledge of God to be without what? Excuse, not information. It's not a failure to have enough evidence presented to you to make a convincing enough case or to make Jesus um, lovely enough or to make the gospel winsome enough or convincing enough or to make it attractive enough. The issue in evangelization is that sinners love sin. John 3, their deeds are evil. They love sin. Men love darkness rather than light, he says, because their deeds are evil. 
So you can take Satan out of the system and you've still got depravity. And you can put the man with depravity in a perfect environment and he's still going to love sin because that's his nature. It's what depravity is. It's not that everybody's as bad as they could be possibly, but it's that everybody loves sin. Sin blinds sinners in every age. You can work all you want to, to make a cultural morality in this country and it's not going to redeem anybody. It's not going to change sinners. They love their sin. In fact, it'll just make sinners mad. And uh, haven't you seen that happen? Wherever there is the rise of some Christian in politics or whether there, it appears as though someone who has a high standard of morality is about to get elected, the battle gets really heated because sinners don't want any encroachment on their freedoms. So you have in the kingdom a generation of Christ would-be Christ murderers rise. So man's depravity is not affected by environment. Satan's desperate wickedness and hatred of God and Christ are not at all altered by being in prison for a thousand years. He doesn't get any better. He gets worse. Now he's madder than he's ever been. And when he's released from the pit after this thousand years, he comes out as evil as always and more hostile than ever. He doesn't change. Hell doesn't change people. Punishment doesn't change people. It's not meant to do that. So you have the same wicked, vile, hostile, fallen angel, and you have depraved people, and they get together at the end of the thousand years with the view of killing Christ. That takes us to verses 8 to 10, the revolt of society, the revolt of society. And I'm just going to kind of introduce it because our time is really gone. But in verse 8, it says that Satan, when he's released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations. Now, as I said, nothing external can change men. Their environment doesn't change them. It's like a pig. You, know, you can give him a bath and put a ribbon around his neck, and he's still a pig. It's not going to change his nature. Uh, you can put him in the purest environment, and he's still going to be what he is. And so now you've got Satan coming out, and he's hating Christ more than he ever hated Him. You've got man who is unmoved by peace and the rule of righteousness because he loves his sin. And the combination leads to this revolt. Satan comes out to deceive the nation. Obviously, he is a deceiver. He is a liar. And that's what he always does, and this is no different. He's got to get them all to battle, and he has to do it by deception. He's got to convince them it's going to make sense. I mean, look, these people know the power of Christ. They've been experiencing it for whatever length of time they've lived in the world. They've seen the rod of iron work. They've seen the swift and hasty judgment. They've seen him crack down on sinners. They've seen what happens to those who don't, don't bow the knee to him. They know who he is. They've seen his miracle power. There's not a question about that. There's no big debate about, is Jesus really the king? Is he really God? That is not a debate. It isn't a question of information. They know who he is. They have ample information. And there would be a natural hesitancy on the part of these people to just go tackle him, take him on. And that's why it doesn't happen until Satan is, is released and can go out and by some means deceive them that this is a worthwhile enterprise.
He has the ability to do it. Back in chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He is a deceiver. He's always been a deceiver. He's always portrayed as a deceiver. Somehow he goes out and pulls off this incredible deception. Now, back in verse 3, we saw that he had been deceiving the nations all along. He hasn't deceived them for a thousand years. Now he comes back in verse 7. He's released in verse 8. His deception begins again. His primary function is always to lead people astray, always to deceive them. But, you know, just to remind you, and it's, a, it, it's an amazing thing to go back to this point, that no matter what Satan does, he's just kind of carrying out God's purposes. Let's bow together then in a final word of prayer. What an amazing truth, Lord, it is that we are already citizens of the kingdom. We are already subjects of the king by faith. That even right now in our hearts we enjoy peace and righteousness, joy, power, truth, and wisdom. Lord, we are living in the kingdom now spiritually. Oh, how marvelous and wonderful it is to think about what it will be like to live in the kingdom in a glorified form literally. What a glorious future awaits us. What an amazing glimpse into the coming kingdom. Father, we thank You. We're literally overwhelmed on the one hand that we have been chosen to such glory and we are deeply grieved on the other for those who do not enjoy the first resurrection but experience the second resurrection and the second death who will never know your kingdom and your rule either spiritually or literally or eternally but shall be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. Father, thank You for Your mercy and Your grace. Give us hearts of compassion. May we, like Paul, plead with men and women to come to Christ and escape the coming judgment. Oh, Lord, we thank You for that day in which You will remove Satan, in which the saints will reign, in which Satan coming back and leading a revolt will be finally and eternally defeated. And we'll enter into eternal glory. Lord, we don't need to go through life wondering about the future. You've laid it out so clearly. Thank you that by your mercy and grace, you've made us a part of it. For the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. You're listening to John MacArthur, Chancellor of the Master's University and Seminary, as he continues his compelling look at the return of Christ. Today's lesson is part of his compelling look at the return of Christ. Today's lesson is part of his current study on Grace to You Weekend, titled, When Jesus Comes. Now, I know, John, that you've said the why questions are tricky to answer. Why would God do this or that? But I'm going to ask you one anyway, because it relates to prophecy, what you're talking about. Why do you suppose God would give so much insight into how human history will end? Simple answer, he wanted us to know. He wanted us to know. There's no sense in a believer living in fear, doubt, questioning. But how bizarre is it that the Lord has given us so much revelation about the end and Christians insist on being confused? It just makes no sense. God did not write the book of Revelation to confuse us. 
but to bless us. Blessed is the one who reads and understands this book. I think the end matters. I think God wants us to know how this ends. The beginning matters. Hey, we, we fight for a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Why don't we fight for a literal interpretation of Revelation? It's the same God and speaking with the same clarity. Uh, it is, to me, one of the most disturbing facts of the evangelical church that people and leaders, pastors, are content with a kind of default position on the book of Revelation that says, well, you know, could mean this, could mean that, not really sure, don't want to be dogmatic, don't deal with that. Every Christian needs to know the end of the story. That's why it was revealed. Let me suggest that we have a resource that will help you understand the book of Revelation. You'll get it. It's titled, Because the Time is Near. It takes the entire book of Revelation verse by verse, condenses it into a 300-page book, and explains everything through that book, cohesively, coherently, taking the Word of God at face value. This explains all 22 chapters of Revelation verse by verse. The title of the book because the time is near. It's been very popular and well-received. We'd love to get it into your hands. Again, the cost is reasonable. It's a paperback book. You need to understand the truth of Revelation. That's right, friend. We want you to take hold of the blessing and joy that comes from reading and obeying the book of Revelation. So I encourage you to pick up Because the Time is Near when you contact us today. To order, call us at 855-GRACE or get it through our website, gty.org. The title again, Because the Time is Near. Pick up a copy in English or Spanish by calling us at 855-GRACE or online at gty.org. And now before today's broadcast ends, consider the tangible role you have in proclaiming biblical truth to hungry listeners when you support this ministry. Every day, Grace to You reaches people right where they are, at home, at work, on the go. And it's the support of listeners like you that helps make this Bible teaching ministry possible. To connect people with verse-by-verse teaching in your community and beyond, mail your tax-deductible gift to Grace to You Weekend, Box 4000, Panorama City, California, 91412. You can also donate online at gty.org. Or when you call during regular weekday hours, 800-55-GRACE. That's our telephone number, and it translates to 800-554-7223. Now for John MacArthur and the entire Grace to You staff, I'm Phil Johnson, inviting you back when John shows you the path to anxiety-free living. That's the title of the series. John begins next time with another half hour of unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time on Grace To You Weekend. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M TruthBeToldRadio.com Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com 
Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio.
Same evidence, different interpretations. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for God's Word and the Gospel. We often hear the claim, even from TV personality Bill Nye, that creationists can't be scientists because they reject evolution. This is ridiculous. Many well-educated creation scientists of the past and present would agree with me. Creationists and evolutionists study the same evidence, the same Earth, same fossils, same universe, but they come to completely different conclusions because of their very different starting points. Evolutionists start with millions of years of change from one kind into another, and they interpret what they see through that lens. But creationists start with the history through the lens of God's Word. It's the same evidence, different interpretations. Discover more when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and subscribe to receive free daily email insights from Ken Ham when you go to our website at AnswersRadio.com.
It's a spiritual problem. This is Ken Ham, and our 510-foot-long Noah's Ark is located in northern Kentucky. The Bible tells us that God is clearly seen in what he's made. Since it's so obvious there's a creator, why aren't more scientists creationists? Well, consider this. From childhood, people are indoctrinated to see through the worldview lens of evolution and millions of years. And those who don't think this way, they're ridiculed. Also, most evolutionists have never read creationist writings. They have no idea what we actually believe because they've not done any research. And remember, ultimately, it's a spiritual problem. Unbelievers are blind and love darkness rather than light. Simple humans just don't want to acknowledge their creator. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com and view a complete transcript of this episode at AnswersRadio.com. This little light, this little light, gonna let it shine, let it shine, gonna let it shine, shine. This little light of mine.
Science, founded on the Bible. This is Ken Ham, author of the new family commentary on Genesis, Creation to Babel. This week we're looking at the common claim that creationists can't be real scientists. It's what Bill Nye claimed during our debate, but science was actually founded on a biblical worldview. Many of the greatest scientists of history started with God's word. You see, they believe that since an orderly, consistent God created the world, it should be, well, orderly and consistent. This meant that they could study it to learn more about God and what he's made. Yes, modern science came out of a biblical worldview. And here's just a few famous scientists who were all creationists. Sir Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, and Gregoire Mendel. Yes, God's Word is true. Discover answers when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and find hundreds of programs just like this one when you go to our website, AnswersRadio.com. Joy. For our joy and 
fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God display. God made me and you. For all the value, all our loss. All the great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades. All fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God display. God made me and you. Creationists make great scientists. This is Ken Ham, editor of the eye-opening book Glasshouse, Shattering the Myth of the Evolution. Have you ever heard of an MRI scanner? Well, you probably have. This technology has saved countless lives since being invented in the late 1970s. But did you know the inventor is a biblical creationist? Dr. Raymond Damadian is a brilliant scientist whose research has helped doctors diagnose patients without needing to cut them open. And he publicly gives all the credit for his invention to God. Dr. Damadian is just one of many scientists who start with God's word. You don't have to believe in millions of years of naturalistic processes to be a scientist. This is a philosophical, not a scientific idea. Creationists do make great scientists. There's so much more to discover when you visit our fact-filled website at AnswersRadio.com. Find answers to your questions and receive encouragement at AnswersRadio.com. Kids gather round, a brand new sound to praise the one who has the crown. In today's lesson, we'll talk about the Holy Bible, the most important book we all need for survival. The Bible is God's message for this world. It's for every man and woman, every boy and girl. And that message is that if we turn to Christ and place our trust in Him, we'll have eternal life. Now when we're at church, yeah, it's fun, it's cool. When we hear a lot of stories in Sunday school, like Jacob and Noah, Moses and Daniel, David and Jonah, Joseph and Samuel. But all the little stories tell one big story About the God who made all things for his glory So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus Should we begin when God made the whole wide world just by speaking? By his great might, he said, let there be light. The light he called day and the dark he called night. He made the earth and the seas, the dirt and the seeds, the herds and the trees, the birds and the bees. But the big surprise God had up his sleeve. On day number six, created Adam and Eve, made in the image of the beautiful Most High. God told them, be fruitful and multiply. Everything's yours, but that tree do not try. Because in the day you eat it, you're surely going to die. I'm sure you know the rest, yes, they failed the test And ever since then, the world has been a big mess So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this There's only one hero and his name is Jesus
Because when we read God's word today, the greatest saints had their flaws on full display. And it was written down for us in order that we may recognize that Christ is the only way. Adam ate forbidden fruit and lost his life. Abraham got scared and lied about his wife. Sarah laughed to herself when she heard God's promise. Rebecca encouraged her son to be dishonest. Aaron used craft to make a golden calf. Moses got mad, struck the rock with a staff. David sinned greatly, even lost his baby. And Jacob, he was just all around shady. The point is not to make light of our flaws, but to show that every one of us needs the cross. So as we read the Bible, it's important that we see this. There's only one hero and his name is Jesus. attract men, you're going to attract carnal men. 
and you're going to have to keep using greater carnal means to keep them in the church. But the pastor, in order to keep this larger group of unconverted people, he caters to them. So while he is feeding these carnal men and women with carnal things, he is letting the sheep of God starve to death, and he is going to stand before God one day in judgment. When you actually do the research on what people who committed genocide were like, they were like your nice neighbor. They looked like Mr. Rogers, except when they were committing genocide. That's the freakiest thing about it, but it tells us something about human nature. Atrocities were conducted by normal people who think they're just superior or they're justified. Either I'm better than them so that I, I can do this, or there's some good reason I have for doing this. This is humanity. These are humans. Humans do these horrible things. We're doing it right now with abortion every day. Last time I looked a few years ago, it was 50 million abortions appearing uh, across the world every year. 50 million. This is how humans are. We're sick with sin, and we need salvation through Jesus Christ. We're all like this. We need to turn our hearts to Christ to be forgiven. This is the biggest and greatest need of mankind, is to be reconciled to our Creator because we are a fallen people. False teachers have the appearance of having some nourishment, the appearance of having some sustenance, but nothing ever falls from them. It leaves the ground below them dry and parched. The question is why. We see something like this happening, and I'm sure your parishioners also ask you why. Indeed, they do. This is Wretched Radio, Tulsa, Oklahoma, bucolic town, rural center. Never anticipated they'd experience a mass shooting, but they did. People murdered inside of a building in cold blood, and the community is left reeling, confused, frightened, grieving, mourning, and curious. Why? Why do these things happen? To the credit of Channel 2, they decided to approach two of Tulsa's largest faith leaders to unearth the theological explanation for why evil exists. And what you're about to hear is a pretty big swing and a pretty big miss. The pastor, you might remember... Pastor, I was going to say spit. Expectorate? (coughs) Is that the the, the fancy (laughs) word for spitting? Yeah, I think so. He expectorated into his hand and then smeared it all over somebody's face on the platform at the Sunday morning sermon. I'm like, you're nasty. And do do you hear and see the responses of the people. To be clear, it's not that he doesn't say anything sort of biblical, but wow, what little hope this man actually had to share with a grieving community. One of the things that we've understood is these type of things have no real explanation. Really? No real explanation? Nothing? We don't have an answer in Genesis. You know, that old fall story, the old man ushering in sin, nothing about the total depravity of the human heart because of the fall. No explanation whatsoever. Huh. 
That's the kookiest thing. The world we live in, there are so many wicked and evil things that happen that it seems like we have to endure. That's it. Grin and bear it. Just a lot of lot of evil out there. So you're just gonna you're just gonna have to figure it out. Now he does try to get biblical. So okay, we recognize that, but oh, it doesn't go nearly far enough. One of the things that we know is that weeping may endure for a night, but we really believe that joy comes in the morning. Fair enough. That's a Bible verse. That is certainly a truism. The question is, how does joy come in the morning? It might not be tomorrow morning. It might not be next year morning. It might be an eternal morning when we awaken in heaven and experience eternal joy. Furthermore, where do we find our joy? If you're watching this, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you're not going to hear anything about Jesus. You're not going to hear anything about forgiveness of sins. You're you're not going to hear any warnings to repent lest you likewise perish, you will hear nothing that is helpful for people. And this is an evangelical faith leader. And even as we stand here in the night after such a horrific tragedy, um, our community, this, this Tulsa community, is going to do what I believe we do every time we're faced with tragedy. We're going to hold out for hope until the morning. And we believe something good is going to come from this horrible situation. Okie dokie, that apparently is an allusion to Romans chapter 8, that all things work together for good to those who are his. Uh, But does that make sense to anybody who's watching this? The, the, The question is, why does this stuff happen? And he had many avenues he could have taken. He could have gone to the garden to explain it. He could talk about the evil that is lurking in every person's heart. He could have pointed them toward eternal hope. Oh, there is a glorious place awaiting for those who are hidden in Christ. My message to the community, if you're not a Christian, you better get saved tonight. Because death is imminent for all of us. Please run to the Savior. And if you're a Christian, remember that your Savior, he wept at the death of a friend. He is a caring savior. He is a good, sympathetic high priest. Be comforted. Grab your Bible. Read the Psalms. Find comfort. Don't look to peace to find your peace. Don't look for a community that never experiences anything tragic to find your satisfaction. You need to look to Jesus Christ, but we didn't hear Jesus' name mentioned even once in that presentation. One of the things that I really believe that we can do right now is meet people's tangible needs. Well, there's something uniquely Christian, not. (laughs) They could have brought on the secular psychologist, and frankly, they probably did. And he would have offered that. Just go and do a chore or an errand for them, something simple. Don't ask their permission, just show up and do it. Take the dogs for a walk, fold the laundry, clean the kitchen floor, pick up the dry cleaning, take the kids out for ice cream. If a pastor cannot give better advice than a TED Talk, you are looking at a cloud without water. These people are going to need help in the days to come. They're not just going to need our prayers. They're going to need resources. They're going to need people to help come.
Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make all things? For his glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible. What's the Bible? God's word. God's word. God's word. Is there more than one God? No, there is only one God. And how many persons does this one God exist? Three persons. Who are the three persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where is God? God is everywhere. Can you see God? No, I cannot see God, but He always sees me. Who were our first parents? Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned against God. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Why did God send Jesus into the world? To save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do to save his people from their sins? He died on the cross and he rose from the grave. From the grave. From the grave. Jesus now. He is seated at his father's right hand. And what's Jesus going to do at the end of the age? He's going to come back and judge the world. What must a person do to be saved? Believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And how is a person saved? By God's grace alone. And what is grace? God's kindness to the undeserving. Describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was As long ago as that was have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, 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 as long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed, what can that mean, but my God is immutable, immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the same, immutable, beautiful, you never change, 
just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord, oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same, you have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful, you never change, you remain the All of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies Still you pursue relentlessly At times I wonder how this can be Surely it's because of the cross When Jesus paid the full penalty And bore the burden of sin's great cost I'm saved by grace and faith in God I look to Christ and I trust He died So even though I'm being sanctified I can't be any more justified His work is finished that cannot change And with this knowledge I am free Forever this grace it will remain Because of what happened on Calvary As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never
my husband and I both work. Is my money mine or his money, or do we have to share an account? Like, I don't even know if the Bible even addresses that, but yeah. it is a thing like, this is my money, this is his money. So, thoughts? Um, so the Bible doesn't directly address it, but indirectly I think it's there. Uh, two become one. Mm-hmm. It's strange that two become one and two bank accounts don't become one. Like, <laughs> you're mine and I'm yours, but what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. <laughs> this is fundamentally in conflict with the idea of unity in marriage. Um, so, you know, Scripture talks about how the wife, she has authority over her husband's body. The husband has authority over his wife's body, but, but like, finances are totally separate. It creates a lot of conflict, too, statistically. This is kind of cool. There's an interesting study on this topic just published in 2022 um, in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. It's called Pooling Finances and Relationship Satisfaction. And they actually pulled the results of six different studies, so it's kind of a meta-analysis, on couples who did and did not pool their finances, and the conclusions were couples who pool their finances have greater satisfaction in relationship, are less likely to break up, and it's especially true of couples who have less money. Right? Um, and it's especially helpful for couples in individualistic cultures like the U.S. or U.K. as opposed to Japan, where they have more of a collectivist culture. Um, and so it's an interesting real-world statement of like, hey, look, there's like a biblical thing that's kind of working. Surprise, surprise, you know. <laughs> now, you might not want to pull finances if there's major addiction issues, if there's gambling issues, or if there's abuse issues that make it where at any moment you might have to flee. That's when you might start secretly keeping money aside so that you could support that possible thing because that's a dangerous moment and you need, you need to be able to have somewhere to go. That's a really good point. I like that. Um, all right. Apologist. Apologetics seeks to give credible answers to curious questions, to give a defense. How can the church engage the homosexual community? One of the things that grieves my heart when I think about the church and the homosexual community is the fact that we don't know how to engage one another. In fact, it seems as though either the church or the homosexual community is throwing rocks at one another. And I think it's important that we understand how we can come together in a conversation without compromising as Christians where we stand. I put together an acrostic that I hope will help you. It's the acrostic built out of the word engage. If we are going to engage the homosexual community, first we need to educate ourselves on the issues both biblically and culturally. The N stands for notice the importance of discussing the Bible over theory. The G stands for get rid of overused cliches like God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. We should avoid saying that. The A stands for avoid classifying all homosexuals as gay extremists. Just as Christians don't want to be classified as extremists, and not all are, neither are all homosexuals. The G stands for grant a humble apology for the church's misbehavior when needed or where needed. And the E stands for embrace the idea that you don't have to agree with someone in order to accept someone. In fact, I was sitting in a coffee shop one day, And one person that I began to strike a relationship up with as a friend was a homosexual. And he saw that I was reading and hanging out in the coffee shop. And I said, you know, one of the problems with the church is we want people to agree with us before they accept us. In that moment, he says, man, you mind if I just talk to you outside for a little bit? We stepped outside. He lit up a cigarette. And he shared with me his story, how he grew up in a strict church home. And then he would rebel. And then he was living with another guy at the time. Well, one of the things that blessed me is we were able to engage. I didn't agree with him, 
and he didn't agree with me. Yet we still accepted each other as people, and we were able to have a decent and loving conversation. Even if you are a homosexual listening to me speak right now, I would hope that if we would ever bump into each other, you wouldn't feel my stone nearly as much as you would feel my love. In fact, I hope you wouldn't feel any stone whatsoever, because the truth of the matter is we all need to meet at a cross, and we all need Jesus Christ, and we all need Him to forgive us of our sins. And no matter what you've done and no matter what I've done, I believe we serve a Savior that we need to enter into a conversation about. I believe we serve a Savior that can transform your life just as He transforms mine.
tumbling down.
God is just and he gives us what we deserve for breaking his laws, do you think that he should let us into heaven to be with him? Or should he send us to hell to, as, the, as the wage that we have earned for our wrongdoing? Where do you think he would determine you're going to go? So if God judges you by the standards of this law, you're going to be innocent or guilty on the day of judgment. He says, oh, guilty. I say, well, do you think you're going to heaven or hell? And the usual answer is, heaven. I say, why is that? Do you think God's good and he'll overlook your sins? Yeah, that's it. So we'll try that in the court of law. Like, I don't think I'm bad enough to go to hell because I feel like those are kind of little, like, smaller things, but they can also be big things. So one function of God's law is to stop sinners' mouths, to stop them justifying themselves and saying, there's plenty of people worse than me. I'm not a bad person. No, the law stops the mouth of justification and leaves the whole world, not just Jews, but the whole world guilty before God. Have you murdered anybody? Oh, absolutely not. I would... Have, have, have you ever... <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Have you ever just been angry at somebody driving, somebody who annoyed you? The Bible says if you hate someone, you're a murderer. Yes, probably every day. <laughs> because Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say, if you get angry at somebody unjustly... You're in danger of judgment. He sees it as murder of the heart. It's not as bad as killing somebody, but it's the same attitude. I, I don't want this person alive. Jesus also said, you've heard it said of all, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So, you know, Jesus said, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you commit adultery with her in your heart. Ever done that? He says, yeah, plenty of times. I say, well, from your own admission, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart. And you have to face God on judgment day. We've only looked at three of the Ten Commandments. Now, the seven with the canons pointed out. Yeah. So what we're getting from that is God's standard is a little bit different than ours. We tend to look at, like, really bad people and judge ourselves based on them. That's a big mistake because I can't say to the judge, look, I know I've been speeding, like, 52 times, but that guy is a drunk driver. The judge is going to go, you're missing the point. You, you're, you've broken the laws, and if God's standard is higher than ours, then our rap sheet would be pretty extensive, and he'd, he'd be inclined, I believe, to say you're guilty. Off with you. We're true and faithful witnesses. That's what we'll be preaching, that there is wrath to come, that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has appointed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness. What has God done? so that you don't have to go to hell and you can absolutely, positively be on the shadow of a doubt, go to heaven. I think because he, he forgives us, you know, he opens up his heart to us. On your way to a meeting today, the law clock is going 55 miles an hour through an area set aside for a blind children's convention. There were 10 clear warning signs stating that 15 miles an hour was the maximum speed, but you went straight through at 55 miles an hour. What you did was extremely dangerous. $25,000 fine. The law was about to take its course when someone you don't even know stepped in and paid the fine for you. You are very fortunate. Can you see that telling you precisely what you've done wrong first actually makes the good news make sense? If I don't bring instruction and understanding you've violated the law, then the good news will seem foolishness, it will seem offensive, but once you understand that you've violated that law, then the good news will become good news indeed. Imagine this scenario. You're in a courtroom. 
and you've broken a bunch of laws. There's, there's tape on it. We know beyond the shadow of a doubt you are guilty. And the judge is going to sentence you, and he's going to give you a fine. Okay? And let's say that fine is a million dollars. I don't want to presume anything, but I'm just guessing you wouldn't be able to pay it. Oh, yeah. No, neither, neither would I. Okay, so <laughs> you've got this debt, but what if somebody then enters the courtroom and says, Judge, I love this young lady. I'm going to pay the fine that she owes so that she can be set free. And this person gives the judge a million dollars. Justice has been satisfied, and you can be released because somebody has paid your fine. Think carefully back to Sunday school. Who, according to the Bible, has paid your fine? Who pays the debt? Like, are we talking back in terms of here on earth? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes them should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's as simple as this. We broke the law. He paid the fine. He stepped in and paid the fine for us when we were guilty. God commanded his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you can now exercise repentance towards God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I thought. And I was like, because um, I was like, on here? I was like, mm, I don't know. But, yeah, I was thinking Jesus, yes. That's, that's, that's called the gospel, that Jesus Christ is God took on human flesh, never broke the laws, always obeyed his parents, always did what was right, never lied, never stole, never lusted, was only righteous. And he died on a cross, which is a nasty way to die. The Bible says that God was actually pouring out his wrath on his own beloved son as a payment for those who would believe in his son. So that Guilty criminals can be forgiven, but justice can be satisfied because God's Son satisfies justice by dying for sinners. The point of the man wants to die. If you die in your sins, God will be forced to give you justice. God's justice will be very thorough on the day of judgment. If you've lusted, you've committed adultery. If you've hated, you've committed murder. And Jesus warned the fist of eternal wrath will come upon you and grind you to powder. You don't want to go to hell. I know it. (laughs) And neither do I. But the offer of the gospel isn't just believe in Jesus and you get out of hell. That happens, but that's not the point. The point is that you see somebody who gave their life on your behalf, and it's God in the flesh. If he's that good, that's the one that I want. I want to follow him. I want to live for him because he is that magnanimous. He's that gracious. He's that loving. And you turn from your sins, you put your trust in him, not just because you're afraid of hell, but because now you want to be with the one who died to save you from hell. It's the goodness of God that should lead you to repentance. So if you want to go to heaven, the Bible says you've got one way, through Jesus. Otherwise, he's going to say, depart from me, you lawbreaker. I never knew you. If God has saved them, God will keep them. If he's the author of their faith, he'll be the finisher of their faith. If he's begun a good work them, he'll complete it that day. He's able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him. He's able to keep them from falling before the presence of the glory of exceeding joy. Jesus said, no one will pluck you from my Father's hand. 
today is the day of salvation. And he says, if you will come unto him, he will not cast you out. You will not be any less forgiven than anybody else, and God will see you with the same love that he has for his son because you're going to be in Christ. So my encouragement to you would be, think about these things today because Jesus said, what does it profit a man or woman if they gain the whole world but they lose their soul? You do not need to be embarrassed that you are terrified to share your faith. We all are, but we do all need to overcome our terrors and get about the business of sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Terrified 2, a resource available at wretched.org, will help you overcome your witnessing heebie-jeebies and equip you to be obedient to the Great Commission. Wretched.org slash Terrified 2. To see more wretched, you could also go to their um, their website, like they said, wretched.org, and also on YouTube, there's Wretched Channel. On Facebook, they have their own group there. Um, you can see the radio show and hear the. I'm assuming, well, you can see it too, but uh, you see the the television show and hear the radio show. Um, wretched.org. So check them out. W-R-E-T-C-H-E-D dot O-R-G, wretched.org. And you're sending me Miss Cantrell here, Truth Be Told Radio. And you can check us out at truthbetoldradio.com, truthbetoldradio.com. That's T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. Truthbetoldradio.com. And thanks for sending me, Melissa Cantrell. You can also see my um, website where it tells my um, testimony at smilesandstuff.com, S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F.co, smilesandstuff.com. And thanks for listening to this show. And I'll go out with Yanti and friends and the VIVLE. Bye for now. Yeah.